This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Today I'm with Nick Botulis, and you want to describe a little what you do with water? I'd love to. Yes, I am a water systems designer and a writer and educator as well. Cool. And uh, how did you get into water? Well, how did water get into me, perhaps, is the, is the, is the bigger question. I... I I love that question of is is God water because it is I mean it's obviously impossible to answer but it's so interesting to think about um because it it is you know science says oh it's H2O but it seems unfair to reduce it to such a simple equation when there could be no life on this planet without it and obviously is it's so precious and and intrinsic to our most basic well-being mm. but in any case to be more less philosophical i was an undergrad and i was I was very interested in the environment because my parents were nature-loving people. And I took an intro to environmental science course, and it there was a lot in that thick textbook about water. And I, I would say that would be my first serious introduction to water. And then you, you started to work on people's infrastructure on their lands. And how did you get into that around water? Well, I, again, I would trace it back to those early college days where I was getting a bit depressed studying environmental science because it was pretty much the same trope over and over, which was that humans are destroying the natural world and it and it, it was statistically undeniable i mean we were being served a veritable buffet of data just illustrating how horrible humanity was to the natural world and especially vis-a-vis -vis how we treat water because obviously water is intrinsic to all life and I remember in the textbook, there was a sidebar about the Arcata Marsh and Wildlife Sanctuary, where in the 70s, some of the engineers in Arcata had this horrible sewage treatment plant that was destroying the marine ecology and the salmonid stream of, of, in their town. And they, so they designed a natural sewage system with the marsh. 
And long story short, they've turned this marsh into a wildlife sanctuary that is so biodiverse that they have an annual bird watching festival at the sewage treatment plant. So <laughs> to me, this was, this was life altering because it, it was, it was a counter narrative to this narrative that humans are just bad. And it was a narrative that humans haven't, we haven't lost our intrinsic regenerative potential. And so I think innately we have this capacity to, to create healthy hydrological systems around us. It's just that we tend not to for all the reasons. So the marsh was the primary cleansing agent for the sewage. Yes. It was an engineered marsh. Mm. It wasn't, they didn't just, you know, plant a marsh, but they, they, they calibrated its hydrodynamics mm. to optimize the retention time and the pathway upon which the substrate can be in contact with the river of sewage coming into it. Um, but it was just thought through in a way that optimized the benefits for both life and for human life in the natural world. So the different organisms in the marsh, like the microbes and other little critters were cleansing the whole sewage. Yes. And the plants too. Yes. Yes, the plants pump oxygen from the atmosphere into the root system that then provide the, the conditions in which the anaerobic, the aerobic, and the anoxic, which are the three main categories of sewage purifying microbes. Mm. So what did you do with that marsh example? Did you then start wanting to do some water projects of your own? Yeah, so then I, I actually designed a major around that philosophy, which I found a book called Ecological Design, written by the mathematician Stuart Cowan and the architect Sin van der Rijn. And I petitioned our dean to create a new major uh, that was called Ecological Design that really drew heavily from the art department because I wanted that creative, more imaginal way of relating to the natural world and the hard science, the biology and the ecology. So I, I coupled the environmental science with the art department and then built not only my major, but a, a career um, after post-graduation. Mm. And did you get some jobs pretty soon after graduation in this field? I wouldn't say jobs. I, I really spent the better part of my 20s after graduating traveling from sort of visionary inventor, um, ag agronomist, visionary architects, um, visionary planners to Arcosanti in Arizona. I was at the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems in Texas. Um, I worked with an NGO in Mexico City that was building rooftop farms in the slums. And then, and then you later got into gray water, storm water, rainwater projects. Yes, yes. So in Mexico City, I started translate. I made a bunch of contacts with the university there, with 
projects that were similarly aligned with biological wastewater purification. And I started translating their Spanish academic articles into English because they, they didn't quite have the, you know, the, the feeling of English fluency in their translations. And from there, I, I started grant writing for some of the indigenous farmer cooperatives that were u- utilizing the natural wastewater systems to create certifiably organic uh, urban farms. Because in Mexico City, as you can imagine, all the, the only irrigation water they had was raw sewage and industrial effluent. So the the water was the limiting factor for being able to grow organic produce. And so how do you clean the wastewater? What were the things you designed? Uh, wetlands again. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the Mexico City is fascinating in that it is a closed volcanic basin of 50 square miles, and they have a massive monsoon season in the summer. And so it becomes a big lake. In fact, uh, Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, was an island in the middle of this lake that fed itself with what has been described as the most productive form of agriculture that humanity has ever created. And it was was basically a a hydroponic system, um, and it was a floating uh, farming system on this lake that utilized all of the um, human nutrients. And they had a whole, you know, mythology of deities around rain gods and fertility that, that sort of institutionalized their biological management systems. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about the chemistry of how sewage turns into or gets clean? Yes. I, 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 I can speak honestly better to the biology. Okay. The biology is good. Uh, in that chemistry is not my strong suit, mm. but the, but the biology honestly is more, um, important, I would say, insofar that if we are trying to close nutrient loops, there is a massive taboo around doing anything with sewage and even urine. Despite the fact that urine has a long tradition of being used as a topical antiseptic during times of war, right? So it, it has um, a quasi-sterile quality, yet there is an, a massive taboo around doing anything with urine and recycling urine, especially for food. And it's it's mostly psychological. Um, so the the feces have almost all of the pathogenic risk, right? So all of these great plagues through human history have, have many of them have been credited to poor sewage management. And indeed, you know, the indoor, the flush toilet was invented in by John Crapper, you know, around a time in London when, you know, there was this like, I thought it was invented by David Toilet. <laughs> <laughs> this, that's a good one. 
Yes, he's that's a whole nother book someone should write. Uh, in any case, um, yeah, this the so to speak to the original question, chemistry is I would I have to and the, the chemistry slash biology I have to I have to really bring in who I would consider to be my personal the source of my personal cosmology, which is Lynn Margulis. Perhaps you've heard her name. The symbiotic woman. Yes. Sim the um creator of symbiogenesis theory, which is a a strong parallel to Darwin's theory of evolution. But unlike Darwin, who postulated that competition was the most important, Lynn postulated that cooperation was the most important, and that there was there is no free lunch in the in the microbial world, which is what she was studying. She was a microbiologist, and so everything that excreted um, those excretions became food source for something. There was never. There was never a, a notion of waste. So even within our language, this word wastewater does not have a strong biological um, meaning. It, it's really uh, this human taboo that is imposing itself onto the biology, right? So really, we should be calling it nutrient water or something like this. Mm. We shouldn't be calling it wastewater because yeah, that's just that's just projecting our value system upon the mm. water. I like that nutrient one, yeah. Um, and so, so suddenly uh, you start calling it nutrient water and when you're talking about self-sufficient cities feeding themselves with vertical farms um, and doing closed loop um, nutrient water cycling, and a, a, a sewage treatment plant isn't going to have this plume of, you know, nitrous oxide. You know, if you had nitrous oxide glasses and you looked at a sewage treatment plant, it would just be this massive plume of denitrifying bacteria, right? Just going straight up into the sky, right? And then, and then over here in the Midwest, you have the Haber-Bosch plants, these billion-dollar plants that are using massive amounts of fossil fuels to suck nitrogen out of the atmosphere and into our agriculture system and then creating 300 dead zones at the deltas of all the 300 major rivers of the world because of all that nitrogen runoff. So we have this like, like kind of psychotic relationship to nitrogen when most of that nitrogen is in our urine. 90% of it that we're excreting is in our, is in our urine. I mean, so you're saying urine part. could fertilize a lot of our agricultural systems right now? Yes. Rather than using these chemical fertilizers. Yes. There's a, there's an institute called the Rich Earth Institute in Vermont that is wholly dedicated to community scale urine recycling. So they have vending machines where you, you come in and, bring your buckets, your pails of urine, and then farmers come and haul off these tanks of urine that they broadcast onto their fields. 
Uh, and it's, it's very, there's, and they have a wonderful conference called the Rich Earth Summit every year. And it, it's a, it's a fascinating and eclectic group of academics and, and practitioners from around the country. And are you also saying that our poop should be one of the main fertilizers of the agricultural system also? Or well, does it need to be cleansed quite a bit before it can be used? Well, that, that's, that's kind of a can of worms because mm-hmm. it already is, honestly. I mean, you, you look at sewage sludge fertilizer. I mean, the USDA organic standard um, tried to accept sewage sludge as an organic input. And that was a massive war against the people that were recognizing that that sludge was filled with, you know, domestic and industrial um, contaminants. And it, and it's not, so the, the issue there is, is not so much if we're going to use sewage sludge or biosolids as, as they're called in agriculture. We are, most people are, are eating food grown with sewage sludge. I just don't recommend how they're doing it. It's because we've centralized the whole system is the issue. I feel like our, we need centralized systems or decentralized systems for our factories to have closed loop industrial wastewater processing. So then we can separate out a higher grade of, of waste of nutrient water. But really when it, when you get down to the nitty gritty details, like on this, floating city that I helped design for float, uh, Blue Frontiers, what it came down to is is each individual's personal relationship to their urine. Because if you're on pharmaceuticals, well, you may not want, your neighbor may not want to eat the lettuce grown with your piss, right? Because that's... Uh, there's quite probably a lot of residue. Most pharmaceuticals are not designed to be assimilated by the human body. They're designed to have an action on the human body and then pass out. So it's really the, um, in terms of the urine recycling, the pharmaceuticals are probably the greatest and most complex issue. And the farther up the pipeline you can go, which to me starts at the urethra, Right. So at your urethra is the point in is that we're designing the interface, which really comes down to a, a, um, yeah, a urinal design or an, a peeing on mulch design. Like, do you have a place, you have a, a bucket on your balcony in your apartment with enough carbon in it that you can absorb and balance those CN ratios? such that you can create com- micro compost and then soil and then take that to your community garden or have a rooftop uh, or a, a balcony garden, etc. When you use wetlands and marshes to clean some of the sewage, how is that different than the industrial way of cleaning sewage? What's the difference? 
Yeah, the the industrial way, or, or we could say the conventional way. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think what we're stuck in is a a paradigm where the hierarchy of sciences within the academy is such that physics and chemistry have a higher status than biology. Um, and I kind of understand why, you know, I think when it comes to like an epidemic of a sewage borne in, uh, ailment like cholera in Haiti after Katrina, you know, there's very real epidemics that are sewage borne. Like it's, it's the, the complexity is, is more controllable when you have what what I would call like the nuclear option. You're just like you just take the stuff this the poop and you just you just murder it with chemicals, disinfectants and and physical processes. And there's obviously biology in there. But, but these are chemicals that are synthetic chemicals they're putting into the sewage? Is that what's happening? Or what are they doing? A lot of chlorine and a lot of chloramine. Mm. Um but there's flocculants um and there's bioflocculants, but a lot of the flocculants that separate out the water from the physical particulate, the suspended solids, are not necessarily metals, different heavy metals, and uh, not necessarily ecotoxicologically benign. Okay, so this, so the industrial sewage is using chemistry to clean it, like these chemicals they put in, whereas wetlands and marshes more relying on the biology which is the microbes and the plants yeah. and the little critters chemistry and and what are mechanics right so physics so just like huge pumps and huge tanks and you're just pumping and then you're huge fans to dry out the sludge and the huge trucks and it's just very mechanized right mm-hmm. whereas you go to one of these natural marshes and it's just the, it's just you're using gravity to flow from one cell to the next and then and this sort of thing. So you're, you're just minimizing the use. It's, it's almost inversing the primacy of, you know, chemistry and biology and physics. You're just saying, okay, we need chemistry and physics, obviously. And there's many ways to disinfect the final treatment. And there's many ways to push water that are more environmentally efficient. So we need that. We need that. But it's really, it's like we have to let the, the biologists kind of be the directors and the producers. And would uh, wetlands in the wild, are they pretty good at cleaning our water when it goes through it? Wetlands in the wild? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. You know, uh, there's um, the Center for Wetlands in Gainesville, Florida, has done a lot of work around using existing wetlands to purify human sewage. That said, um, you know, if that wet, wetlands are extremely threatened, you know, in California, we've lost n- more wetlands than we have old growth forests. So we have, and we've lost 96% of our old growth forest in California. So if we have 3% of our wetlands left, do we really want to, of our natural wetlands, do we really want to use them to pump our sewage? Maybe we should just rebuild some of the 
and use sewage to do that. So I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating that we use existing wetlands. And how feasible is it for a city to kind of, if we were to start installing wetlands for a city to clean its sewage, how, how feasible is that, would you say? Or how, how much wetlands would it need to clean, say, a million-person city, say? That's a fine question. You know, the city of Phoenix has a massive municipal wetland. This is beautiful. I think one of the larger municipal wetlands. The city of Hayward also has a substantial natural wetland that it uses for cleansing some of the sewage. That said, um, wetlands are not the only way I think in cities if I think if if with good social design with a good interface design user interface or what's called human factor design in, in, in the academy I think we could start to dual pipe our infrastructure so we you'll find in Sweden it has been has been described as having the most advanced water system of any nation in the world they they have a lot of urine diversion in their toilets, so urine diverting toilets. And I think this is really wise because suddenly you've taken something that's very pathogenic and complex to deal with, the feces, and separated out the urine, which is an order of magnitude easier to handle without risk of public health issues, right? So it's it's not hard to entrust your average urban citizen to take their urine and offset their carbon footprint with that nitrogen by sequestering atmospheric carbon through the plants that are grown with that nitrogen, right? Because that nitrogen is arguably the most limiting element on the entire periodic table elements for a plant's ability to grow more and thus sequester more carbon. Mm. So it's interesting because in our society, we kind of think of inputs to our society like food and stuff and outputs as, you know, our sewage and stuff. But we don't think in terms of cycles, almost like input, output. But really, nature works more in cycles. And there's a phrase in permaculture, waste equals food. So, like, for instance, plants' output is... um is oxygen. So it's their waste product, but it's for, for animals like us, it's our input. And then we ex ex output carbon dioxide, which they like as an input. And so it's kind of like the input of one creature is the output of another. And so, and same with soil, right? Like it's like you're building, you need the plants and stuff to create this stuff, but then you also need the decomposers to turn that back into the soil and Mm. And similarly, like, yeah, the, the poop and the urine is really food for the system, just for a different part of the system. And so, yeah, and like you're saying, it's like the nutrient water is, is the urine. And so, um, if we start thinking in cycles, it's more, we then can look at human civilization, and say, how do we fit into this cycle rather than this input output only kind of paradigm? Yes, by all means. And that's, that's symbiogenesis, right? That's the the origin of life through symbiosis is, is right there since the beginning of life. This what you just said is expressed itself from the from the very root of the of the 
tree of life. Right. And you're saying, you, you know, you build co- human compost tots and you're saying you want to use that as a way of generating forests and stuff. So you want to say a little bit about what you do there? Definitely. So yeah, there's this great scientific concept of endozoochory. Endo being within, zoo being animal, and cori is the dispersal of seeds. So the dispersal of seeds from within the intestines of animals. So the, for example, the, the avocado, it has, there's a great book called The Ghosts of Evolution that describes how avocado was native to the Americas and was once widely spread by an extinct animal that used to eat the entire avocado and poop out the avocado pit into this package of nutrient-rich goodness that would then lodge itself into some twigs or something and then start to sprout because it was, you know, protected from the harshness of the elements by this nutrient wad. And then it had its all the nutrients it needed within that wad to start and then sink its roots into the ground and then start a new avocado tree. And since during the Pleistocene, as North America and South America lost 80-ish percent of its megafauna, a lot of the seed dispersal naturally has been lost. So I have, I have Native American friends that tell me when they go to their ceremonial sites, it's usually a circle, circle around a, a fire where a lot of their ceremonies would take place. Um, and this, this particular story was from the, from Texas and within pooping distance of that fire, there's a ring of nopal cactus because the, the fruit of the nopal, which is the prickly pear or in Spanish, the, the atun, the, the tuna, I believe it's called, um, has these seeds that you just digest and then you poop it out and then they grow. So yes, I love, I love this idea. In fact, it's, we were talking earlier about the anadromous nutrient pump where all of the coho and, and Chinook that make their way up the tributaries of the great rivers of the West and then get eaten by bears who are also then eating berries and that's then pooping out that mixture throughout the forest. I would argue that we have, through the loss of, of our, um, salmon runs, we have seen a, a massive loss of native food forests through the cessation of endozoochory. Mm. So it's this very basic biology. And, and quite frankly, I, I would be for having very intentional, like feasts where we feast upon native fruits and nuts and we swallow the seeds. And then we have catapults that we launch our poop back into, onto the ridges and, um, and, and, the degraded landscapes in order that the wild abundance of food can be restored in that soil carbon sponge. I'm, I'm half joking. 
because obviously I don't want to perpetuate poor management of hygiene, which is a very real question. Um, That said, um, my systems of flush composting toilets are very hygienic. They're, um, I was, um, my, the first company I started was a worker owned cooperative called dig cooperative. So in terms of the, um, so you, you, you talked about the, the salmon and the, and the rivers and, uh, how the salmon swim up the rivers is eaten by the bears, it poops it, and then it, helps feed the trees and so it's a kind of a nutrient cycle so one of the problems with our damming of all the rivers like in california there's 1500 dams and elsewhere there's in the world there's lots of dams is that these this nutrient cycle is being stopped because the salmon can't often can't swim through these dams and uh, so rivers are actually important part of this whole kind of nutrient cycle and it's and also in the sense that the rivers, if they're undammed, will also naturally flow a lot more and overflow, right, and create wetlands by the side of the river. So that's a natural part of rivers is to create these wetlands. But now with our dams, we've stopped the generation of all these wetlands. And so these wetlands, which are naturally cleansing our water all the time, is also that function is, is not so present in our system. So there's multiple issues that arise when we start damming our rivers. These certain ecosystem functions get destroyed damn rivers (laughs) (laughs) yes yes it's truly a travesty the this you know i our family spent many of our summers along the columbia river which is probably the most damned river on the planet and because of its volume of water, the hydroelectric energy potential arguably is what stopped Hitler because Boeing set up shop because of the cheap aluminum production along that Columbia River. Where's the Columbia River? It's along the the border of Washington and Oregon and then it, Mm. it heads up into Canada. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still the cheapest electricity in the nation is in the Northwest because of the Columbia and this most damned river. And, and Bonneville, I believe, uh, was neck and neck with Hoover as the first mega dam on the planet. Um, and that the Bonneville's on the Columbia and, and that was, that was all of these, these mega dams were rushed during I believe World War II as part of the war effort, right? So we stopped Hitler, but we never really stopped and looked at the cost of stopping Hitler. And that, and when that dam went in, witnesses tell the story of hundreds of thousands of salmon throwing their bodies against this the wall of the dam. And these salmon would have fanned out into thousands of tributaries of the Columbia and fed 
hundreds of different First Nation peoples that survived on that salmon, those salmon runs for millennia. And so the, the Indian fishing rights and the Indian fishing war of the wars of the seventies were fascinating and historic, um, in, in, in granting first nations rights to those salmon. But I think restoring those runs are part of the reconciliation that must happen in the, between the United States and, and the first peoples in this land. But the, but when those hundreds of thousands of salmon piled up on the Bonneville Dam, the stench of the decaying bodies, you could smell for miles, and it smelled so bad that the government officials poured truckloads of kerosene onto it and created a bonfire that lasted for days, and it was a massive bonfire burning salmon. That, that image sticks in my mind so vividly as such a symbol of, of the end of an era of indigenous food system that with one massive wall created this tremendous amount of so-called renewable energy, but truly not that renewable in that mm. an entire culture turned to fry bread and government cheese in from one year to the next. Yeah, I, I've wondered, and I've heard people wonder why there aren't Native American restaurants. We have all these other ethnicities, but maybe if we uh, return the salmon, then there's part of your Native American <laughs> restaurant. Um, so you said there was hundreds of millions of salmon, is that right? Yes. Moving through these streams. So that's a significant amount of nutrients. So, I mean, just from kind of an ecosystem service perspective and a kind of energy perspective, right? So, I mean, we're saying the hydro dams create energy, but it's also we're losing a lot of energy because these salmon are actually transportation devices for food to, to lots of people, which we now have to use trucks to ferry. And then also, I mean, the fertilizer for lots of trees and nature and stuff that now we have to ferry and, 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 you know, transport all these fertilizers. So there's a lot of cost to this, you know, to this, uh, you know, we're generating certain electricity, but then when we're, we're using a lot more electricity, like, and in California, like, I mean, I think a huge amount of electricity are actually just to transport all that water to Southern California and, you know, across the mountains and pumping it up. So we actually waste a lot of energy just to even move all that water. And, and as we, and then also that, you know, as we kind of have less water for certain parts of the wilderness because we're, we're ferrying it away, right? That there, there's a natural way that the trees are evapotranspiring and pumping the water further inland and, you know, creating mm -hmm. rains inland. So just as there's water flowing out to the ocean, there's also water being pumped inland. But that's a natural cycle that nature's generating. And as we kind of lose, evapotranspiration, the ability to kind of pump that water inland, we also have to, you know, use more energy to transport that water around. So we're kind of, so I don't know if overall, like we generate a lot of electricity from hydropower, but we might actually net lose in the, in the, in the overall scheme of things, energy wise. Great point. 
Yeah, so important. If we're going to be pumping our fossil fuels into the atmosphere under the rubric of moving rivers from one end of the state to another, why don't we? I mean, there it's been Andy Lipkiss with Tree People in Los Angeles is, has calculated that there's plenty of water in Los Angeles that falls on the LA County to provide for the needs of every single citizen of Los Angeles County. Just that it's, it's easier socially to, to take one pump and drain a river in Northern California to artificially put that pipeline and, and a meet a water meter on the end of it rather than create 10 million autonomous water systems right. from rainwater, right? I mean, it just becomes this kind of social welfare state ideology that, you know, that the daddy can take care of everything. Don't you little children worry about a thing. We don't question our engineering. We got it all figured out. <laughs> yeah, and the other issue is that when you pump all that water to somewhere else, like the Central Valley Farms in LA, like then the other areas are drying out. And so then you have lots of wildfire, which then costs society tons of money to deal with these huge fires. And um, so there's kind of the costs, I think it's just kind of like, there's economics rate externalizing costs that as you do these engineering projects, you don't realize that there's costs coming in in other directions if you don't see all the consequences of of your action of diverting water in different ways. And, um, yeah, and I think it's partly because water has so many different paths and different functions that, I don't know, I think we sometimes have trouble seeing how useful and how nature evolving over millions of years, the water pathways are actually quite, it's quite efficient. We just didn't recognize it. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I'm, the words of David Suzuki, the the Canadian scientist, come to mind where he said economics is a form of brain damage. I I, I might be bastard. He might, he might have said modern or industrial economics, but it, something along those lines. And I find it to be hilarious and poignant because, mm. yeah, we have we have these. You know, this economic development dogma that, you know, maybe at the time in the 1950s, you know, given the best available knowledge, which obviously was not referencing indigenous science, but the, the best available, what I would call refugee knowledge, you have these refugee engineers designing refugee camps that have become our, our modern metropolises, metropoli, and suddenly you're like, wow, we've, we really do inherit the sins of our elders, as the Bible says. So, what would you, what do you say about, uh, you know, because most cities nowadays, most modern cities have storm drains, like in the roads, the storm drains, like, do you know how that came about and what consequences has this whole paradigm of storm drain done for society and our water system. And do you have a solution? Like, or what do you say? Yeah, well, I, 
I, it's hard to beat the Brock Dolman's words of it's time to leave the drain age and and re-enter the retain age mm. because uh, retaining all of that precious water into our landscapes is going to rehydrate and rebuild the soil carbon sponge so that we can bring back that all of these native ecosystems that provide everything that we need. So what should urban designers do with the, with the storm drains? What would you suggest they do? Well, a, a lot of cities are, have embraced what's called low impact development, which I, f I find a, a poor choice of words because it is the, uh, the, the opposite of regenerative thinking that would be trying to make a high impact because the impact is itself regenerative. When you're talking about low impact, you're, it's kind of this meek, like, oh, I don't want to have an impact on the landscape, but it's denying our intrinsic biological symbiosis, right? It's just ignoring that we are symbiotic creatures and that every action, every piece of infrastructure could be optimized so that the water flows are bringing back that soil carbon sponge and, and infiltrating all that water to restore the local water cycle. But no, we have, we're kind of stuck in this old philosophy of like, let's just, let's just l make a less evil, right? Let's just like, we know we're evil. Let's just be less evil. So let's have less of an impact. Anyway, I go to the, the stormwater conferences I love all the people working in low impact development or LID, which is <coughs> an entire methodology based on infiltrating rainwater and stormwater into the landscape. Well, the methodology is great. I don't know who coined the term, but I challenged Brock Dolman to, to come up with a better, better one. So how exactly does it work? So water, instead of going to the storm drain and out to the river, it it's funneled into rain gardens or what, where is it funneled into or how does it work exactly? What does it look like in well, cities? So mo most of the natural waterways became the de facto drainages. And, and then and all the storm drains coming off of people's houses and um, off the s different streets, the street drains, they would funnel down using gravity to the natural drainages. And this, of course has been devastating to the aquatic ecosystems because not only are you getting all the runoff pollution from the cars, the oil pan drip, the brake pad, you know, the copper in the brake pad in something like seven parts per million of copper in suspension and water completely destroys the, the magneto receptivity of salmonids so their chemosensitivity is, is how they see it's how they s smell it's how they find mates it's how they find their natal stream everything is done and that copper just cuts that off and there's there's just it's just over and over again it's the same story you've got this delicate you know chemistry in the water and then on the fish because it's, as you can imagine it's hard to see underwater so you develop these other senses that humans are just beginning to understand. And then you have the thermal pollution, right? Because the pavement is heating up in the sun. It's lost its tree cover. The water hits it. 
it absorbs the water, and suddenly uh, a coho salmon that needs, let's say, 50 degrees water in order to not get a fungal infection in its gills is now getting gill rot because the oversummering pools are 70 degrees or 80 degrees, and you're just having fish composting alive in the water because it's unnaturally hot. So, so where should, how should we funnel that stormwater and see where, where does it go? Put it into a park or what's the, what do you do? Put it into wetlands? What? I mean, there's, yeah, there's a hundred and one ways of, of doing it for sure. And, and a lot more. I mean, at, at, at place, I don't know if you saw the vertical rain garden I built, but I was trying to push the imagination in, in a, a space constrained system. So I, Along this wall, I built a series of pipes that had a biochar and worm casting soil medium in a mesh in between the pipes. And then the pipe filled up, uh, pipe net network filled up from the gutter through gravity. And then the pipes wept, slowly wept out into the vertical garden. And it completely vegetated this entire 10 foot by 12 foot wall. Mm. just with stormwater um, weeping through a wall. So that that took up an entire footprint of, of uh, 12 inches along a wall. So it didn't have, there were no competing use, really. And that was to show that we really can do this in cities, even in space-constrained environments. But one of the more common strategies is something called a curb cut, where you you take a concrete saw, you make a little cut in the curb, and then you lower the soil level in the sidewalk medium planter or planting strip such that the water off of the street runs into the median strip and then slowly sinks and spreads into the groundwater so that trees and other plants can tap into that water lens through the dry months. And does it have to be cleansed, or that is the cleansing ability? So when, like if, say, the water on the street has a lot of car oil and stuff, as you funnel it into these, the plants, the plants will cleanse that car oil? Definitely, you know, and I mean, the, the key concept with bioremediation, right, of, of how do we use biology to remediate pollution, it really it comes down to quantifying the quality of the effluent. So with certain qualities of effluent, we can quantify the hydraulic residence time and the amount of substrate needed to appropriately remediate the contamination. That's all to say that, yeah, you got to size your basin to the volume and the quality of runoff. So you have to just have some understanding just, just it could be as simple as testing, putting a little cup of and capturing the first storm water and sending it to a lab and so you know what you've got. But additives uh, like biochar have one little handful of biochar. You have the surface area of a football field, and that surface area creates microbial architecture for remediation, unlike anything you know if you take the same volume of just sand or 
silt or clay, you're going to have an almost incomparable amount of surface area in the biochar, you know, relative to biochar. It's just, um, so any, and, and that biochar is going to last for thousands of years. It's a crystalline carbon. It does not oxidize all of the other forms of carbon and end up in the atmosphere within our lifetime. Mm. So Flint, Michigan had a crisis around water. Do you have anything to say about how they could clean their water? Oh boy, yeah, that's a good question. I I know there's that um, Michigan's famous for its urban farming scene, and I think. The nice thing about urban farming is that it, it really, it is, if you're irrigating vast swaths in the city, that, I, and I, if I'm not mistaken, it's lead that was the main issue in Flint. And at place we hosted the EPA to do a lead bioremediation workshop for our community garden. And the main technique is called phosphate immobilization and basically what you're doing there and in the case of of our workshop with the EPA we import they imported containers full of pollock bones from the pollock fishery in Alaska pollock is the mick fish sandwich fish so it's one of the most fished fishes in the world there's huge amounts of this this pollock bone that are very high in phosphates and the phosphates have this interesting chemical attraction to lead and they they bind together and they create a new or we could say an old uh, molecule called pyromorphite which is how you would commonly find lead in its natural state is in this molecule called pyromorphite and pyromorphite is the lead in pyromorphite is not bioavailable to the human body the problem with lead in its industrial form is that it's very bioavailable in fact if you're calcium deficient the human body um, confuses or something the lead and the calcium um, ions and then we just start utilizing the lead in our um cellular construction and then it causes brain damage and all kinds of problems and so yes and in flint where you have this industrial lead like on on a very basic level like the strategy apart from obviously ripping out all the infrastructure and putting in new infrastructure but who knows how long that will take to get funded to deal with the existing flow of lead contaminated water i think the, the way to think about it strategically is we're we're converting that lead into pyromorphite in the soil and then eating testing the tissue of the plant material to to show that there is no more industrial lead in that plant tissue mm. And so what we're ingesting, it's not going to hurt us. In fact, many people say um, that eating fruits and vegetables 
is a healthier way to hydrate than drinking tap water. And that's true for most municipal water supplies. Obviously, I'm sure many municipal water suppliers would argue the opposite. But when I drink tap water, and I compare it to the spring water that I usually drink, I'm usually, my body I can just feel is not that excited to drink the tap water. I mean, it's kind of has this over, you know, disinfected kind of vibe to it. Mm. I heard Gina Brea say she was looking how anthropologists found some tribes that were drinking much less water than it seemed like they needed. And she figured out that was because they were eating fruits and the fruits were actually allowing the water to get into the cells better than just drinking water. Yeah. In in nature, how much does the animals, wild animals get from eating their water from food and from drinking from rivers and stuff? You think? That is an excellent question. Wow. I think it, it's probably hard to generalize. I know right, there, yeah. I know there's animals that don't drink, mm. you know, like these Namibian desert beetles that just sit up on the ridge line at dawn and dusk and wait for the fog to condense on their wings and they kind of, you know, it flows down these little channels into their mm. interior. But, uh, yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, I, you don't. You, in Africa, you definitely see the watering holes filled with animals during the dry season. All the elephants and the Serengeti, you know, they're all just hanging out at the water hole. Right. So, I mean, I think there's times of the year where there is no fruit. I'm sure in a lot of ecosystems where the water holes are the only. And there's probably other times of the year where there's a plant, enough fruit that we don't have to risk go into the water hole where obviously the predators are hanging out waiting to pounce on all the thirsty creatures. You know, it occurs to me that, you know, we think of the water cycle as, you know, just the rivers and the groundwater, and but we don't think that actually organisms are often ingesting water both through fruit and through the rivers and then peeing it out, and, that's, and they're often moving it some distance as they move around, and so they're moving that water and, and like say they're peeing, I mean, they're, they're fertilizing naturally yes. while they're doing it. And so there's, yeah, I think, it, and yeah, I, I, climate models probably when they're tracking the water, don't actually take into account animal movements and how they're moving water around. But if you think about it, like, I mean, there's 7 billion humans on earth and they're moving around, that water's moving around and same with all the other animals that are moving around. Yes. Yeah, I know, and that it does beg the question in my mind, or kind of the, the very controversial question of of animal agriculture on wildlands, because it it drives me a little bit nuts that when you when you quantify the water footprint of food solely from the perspective of like, well, this animal took this much water to produce this pound of meat or this pound, this, this much water for this pound of vegetable. But the thing that's happening, it's not being discussed is in regenerative ranching that can be done in a way that, you know, when 
that is restoring the hydrology because you're moving so much water through urine onto landscapes that for months and months of the dry season get no water. Not only that, they're they're bend they're bending over dry grass and then depositing nitrogen. So you're getting this CN ratio that is kind of optimized for building soil to carbon sponge. And from a, the lens of a gardener, it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what I do on the gar- we do in gardens is we we mulch and then we add fish emulsion, which is basically nitrogen, and suddenly you've got CN balance for getting good food forest. Well. Um, I hate to say it, but cows are often in a well-managed regenerative system, which is less than 1% of ranching, unfortunately. Um, but in that 1%, it's very important to, to, to notice that because we had in California, for instance, at least half a million elk that were, during the cold rush, hunted to near extinction there was you could count on one hand the number of elk left in the entire state and you just quantify the volume of urine that those elk deposited and now we have almost the same amount of cattle in the state of california depositing the same amount of urine right so you're getting kind of this proxy ecosystem through the cattle i would rather have the cattle I mean, the elk, I'd rather be eating elk meat through some kind of uh, cooperative elk pastoralism, kind of like the reindeer and, and, um, and the caribou in the northern climates that are, you have these cooperative wild foods, food ecosystems. But in any case, yes, the urine and plays in the, in the wild urine plays a tremendously important role and is vastly under, under analyzed in all of these equations. Wow. <laughs> cool. Well, I think there's been a really interesting discussion and, and it's a lot about what's usually considered part of the waste stream of water, but where it's really, it's not really, you can also see it not as the waste, but also on the flip side as it's a nutrient and also it's shifting water around to where it's needed too. And so, um, yeah, so we covered kind of the urine and the, the poop and also the storm water drainage out of urban cities. So all kind of part of this waste, uh, waste stream. That's also a input stream. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> you have any uh, closing words? Thanks, Alpha. You know, I'm really uh, I'm so thrilled that, that you've invited me to share this conversation with you. And that was our interview with Nick Bertulis. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you're already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, Come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website, or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth.